It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to the Thursday edition of Bloomberg Sound On. It's Little Friday. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington and glad you joined us this day after the big Fed decision. The hawkish skip that seems to be getting a yawn today on Wall Street Chair Jay Powell. In May, the 12-month change in the Consumer Price Index came in at 4%, and the change in the core, core CPI was 5.3%. Inflation has moderated somewhat since the middle of last year. Nonetheless, inflation pressures continue to run high, and the process of getting inflation back down to 2% has a long way to go. A long way to go, says Jay Powell. And joining us to get things rolling today, his take on this, because he was in the room for that conversation, posing questions to the chairs, Michael McKee, of course, Bloomberg Economics Editor. It's great to see you, Michael. Uh, we've survived another here. We got our hawkish skip, which reminds me of the pinkish hue on Seinfeld. Uh, where, God, how Washington comes up with this stuff. Uh, but a day later here, Wall Street still whistling past the graveyard, just like it did essentially through the debt ceiling fiasco. They just don't seem to believe what Jay Powell is telling them. Well, they bought part of the argument, and that is that they're not going to cut rates this year. Okay. And so <clears throat> that's sort of a victory for the Fed in that it keeps uh, financial conditions a little tighter than they otherwise might have been. But it seems what happened is uh, markets are forward-looking, and they're discounting mm-hmm. six months in advance. Well, in six months, the Fed says it's going to be cutting rates. So they're looking past the possibility of these additional rate hikes to 2024 mm-hmm. when rates will theoretically be going down. And uh, so the, the initial knee-jerk reaction, once people thought about it, has sort of been wiped away. Well, it's interesting because this is a market that has been betting on rate cuts, to your point. But also, Wall Street seems to think there's a recession coming. Maybe not. I can't figure this out because every major economist seems to have a recession on the cards at some point in the the second half of this year, the first half of next year. But we're setting new highs while we're at it. <laughs> yeah, there's a, uh, been a line going around saying that um, economists have uh, seen a recession coming for 18 months sometime in the next three months. <laughs> yes. And so sometime in the next three months is still where we are. Well, so what do you tell our listeners uh, who hear this stuff? They read it on the terminal. They, you know, these big firms are coming out, very smart people, smarter than we are with forecasts. Uh, that just aren't coming true. Michael McKee, you've seen this happen before. Yeah. Uh, well, they're using models, and the models are based on past experience. And there's not a lot of experience from this uh, pandemic, not just the pandemic and what it did to supply chains and things like that, but yeah. the, the extraordinary stimulus we had, what that means, how fast people spend it down, et cetera. So there are a lot of moving parts, and it's very hard to forecast what's going to happen. If you step back and take a sort of big-picture look, mm-hmm. what you're seeing is – 
uh, an economy that is slowing but not falling off a cliff. It's not diving. It's not uh, heading into recession yet, if it is going to at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is definitely slower than it was. Uh, job creation, while still high, is slower. Wages are still growing, but they're growing at a slower pace. Mm-hmm. We saw a nice retail sales report today. That that was the latest clue. Well, the, you know, they, the retail sales uh the, the good news within it is that every category, pretty much except gasoline, yeah. uh, rose, but they didn't rise by as much as they have been rising. So people are still spending. They're just not spending as much. Mm-hmm. And so the economy continues to putter along. An unexpected increase, though. It's just another data point confounding the economists who seem to think that we're in some kind of trouble here. <laughs> but my goodness, if retail sales, if consumer spending stays strong like that, the job market hangs in there. Maybe Jay Powell has orchestrated the soft landing. Well, you know, uh, if I were Jay Powell, I would say that right now because you don't know what's <laughs> going to happen six months from now. But true. at the moment, after 500 basis points of tightening, you know, the economy is in what you would call a soft landing. Now, the question is the the backup of uh, – of, of rate increases that have yet to hit the economy? Are they going to hit it hard? Right. Are we right. going to continue to go down? And will they actually need to raise rates another 50 basis points, or are they just giving themselves some wiggle room? Uh-huh. Uh, all to be determined, which I know people on Wall Street hate because they want to be exactly. by the, They want the Fed to say, this is what we're doing, and this is when we're doing it. But we just don't know at this point. We'll learn a lot more in the next, uh, I guess, in, in, in two months. That next CPI report will be even more important than the last, I suppose. Great to see you, Michael. Always a pleasure to have Michael McKee with us in Washington, D.C. Down this week for the Fed meeting, Bloomberg Economics Editor. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. As we promised, the senator from Louisiana is with us to jump in on this conversation and tackle a couple of other issues. Senator Bill Cassidy, we welcome you back to Bloomberg Radio. It's great to have you, sir. And I wonder your thoughts on this. I know that you're you're a doctor, not an economist. I feel like I'm on Star Trek now. But, uh, but you, of course, have a very good sense of the cross-currents in our economy now. Is this... The soft landing? Oh, I think. I, uh, man, if you can predict that, go to the track and uh, pick the next horse. <laughs> uh, but we're in it now, Senator. Does it feel like that actually th- that we might avoid the worst uh, that, that many people were fearing on Wall Street? I actually not. We have not yet finished seeing the fallout of the depression that has been facing us. I just asked a very knowledgeable friend about the uh, pro- the, the problems with property and casualty insurance in which major insurers are pulling out of the state of California, out of the state of Louisiana, uh, and other – and I can keep going. And, they, and, and my friend says that the cost to repair anything has gone up 30 percent. Mm-hmm. So therefore, they have to increase premiums by 30 percent but also have to buy 30 percent more reinsurance. But – since reinsurers are required to hold most of their money in bonds and the bonds they hold are yielding less than the rate of inflation, then they're having to absorb this and they're getting caught both ways. Now, if you cannot, if you're paying far more for your, uh, for your um, uh, property and casualty insurance or yeah. can't get it, yeah. what does that do to your ability to sell your house, to buy a new house, to refinance your mortgage? I don't yet think we've seen the permutations of what this inflation has done to our economy. And, and I think until we call it a soft landing, we have to yeah. have a sense of how that entirely plays out. 
Well, and that speaks to the work that's left to be done here. I mean, the Fed message yesterday, Senator, is that there's a lot more wood to chop here. We're not done yet. And as Michael McKee just said, they could be just buying themselves from time, some time. Maybe we do see the lagging effect start to kick in now. But do you worry about the Fed continuing to hike with, without having an answer to that question? I do. But, but, the, this, but, the, but the administration continues to attempt to pump more money into the economy. Uh, for example... Uh, the student loan pause adds about five billion dollars a month, five billion a month to to kind of the excess capital in, in, in our buying power. Yeah. Now, of course, the debt ceiling deal theoretically has ended that, but the administration is going to begin the end September first, and there's press reports that they may give a six month to twelve month grace period for people to adapt to it. Now, okay. 12-month grace period starting in, in, in September. Now we're talking about roughly 14 or 15 times $5 billion. That's that much more money that they're pumping into the economy. Um, the Fed is just chasing all the money that's being pumped in. The Biden inflation is – it's almost like they have a policy to increase the, 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 to increase the inflation rate. There's so much I want to ask you about here, and I have to start with – because you just pointed to it uh, – student loans, student debt – you're up at the College Transparency Act, remembering that Joe Biden, of course, wanted to forgive student debt. And I'll bring people back just a few months when this was announced. Using the authority Congress granted the Department of Education, we will forgive $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans. In addition, students who come from low-income families, which allowed them to qualify to receive a Pell Grant, will have their debt reduced 20 so this has been uh, up and down here, tied up in courts, and will likely be uh, will, will will come out in a Supreme Court decision. Your College Transparency Act takes a very different approach, Senator. How does it work? Yeah. So first, we have to say that the president's so-called forgiveness merely transfers the debt to other taxpayers. Those who never took a loan, those who paid their loan back, those who struggled to pay their loan back but did it anyway, this transfers responsibility to them. But it doesn't fix the underlying problem. A committee for a responsible federal budget says in five years we'll be back exactly where we were because the Biden plan does not fix the underlying problem. It just kind of attempts to erase the board. What our plan does, which is bipartisan, Elizabeth Warren is my co-sponsor, is it says, okay, whatever you look like, you look in the mirror, whatever you look like, you're a black male, you're a a white, uh, you're a Hispanic female, you name it, you look in the mirror. I'm going to go to a university. I can go online. If I enroll in this curriculum at this university, what's my likelihood of graduating? And how much money am I going to have to borrow starting off wherever I start off financially? And what am I going to learn, earn when I get out? Now, by the way, some universities do a fantastic job of making sure that kids from all backgrounds graduate in the curriculum in which they originally enroll. Some do not. We should let the person know, she and her family know, what that, what that anticipatory record is um, and, by the way, how much they're going to earn and how much they owe. So we're trying to correct the underlying problem, which is a symmetry of information, which leaves the prospective student at a tremendous disadvantage. How does a Republican senator from Louisiana end up in the same room as Elizabeth Warren? This, if you think about it, is about transparency and about addressing uh, a market failure. 
John Cornyn from Texas is one of our co-sponsors. I forget who our Democrats are. But if you think about that policy, there is nothing partisan about it. It's what each of us would want one of our children to know before our child makes a decision as to what university to attend. And I think that there is a misnomer that everything out there has to be seen through a partisan lens. I only mentioned Elizabeth to say that it enjoys broad. Well, that says a lot, yeah. Very conservative uh, liberal support um, to say this is not a partisan issue. It is something that we have to address if we're going to fix the underlying problem. Sure. It would also indicate that you could get this thing passed, Senator. What are you hearing from the leadership on it? Yeah, so uh, I, I think it can pass. We've introduced it as part of a, a, a set of bills recently, but I think this is something that could be plucked up and put down. By the way, John Cornyn, speaking of John, um, uh, Chuck Grassley, uh, Tommy Tuberville, each have pieces of legislation, which, for example, Grassley's. If a university is going to give you what is effect an offer sheet of what they're going to do in terms of financial aid, there has to be a standard format so that you can compare one with the other and have accurate data. Uh-huh. Some universities present student loans, which you can uh, apply for as part of their financial aid package, and others will say you can apply for it in addition to the assistance we're going to give you. Now, the latter is far more honest, but we should be able to compare them equally. Um, uh, uh, Tuberville, I think it was, or no, Steve Daines from Montana, mm-hmm. has a bill which requires the lender to give you a standard format, much as you go and get a mortgage and it's all laid out in a standard fashion, so with the lender. So these are all things attempting to address the underlying problem, which is that there's an asymmetry of information, and they're all preying upon the prospective student in order to get their money but also to put them in debt. You mentioned Tommy Tuberville. That's the Republican senator from Alabama. Of course, our listeners are familiar with his name, and he's placed a hold on all general and flag officer nominations uh, over this uh, uh, paid leave for abortion uh, policy, the travel or paid leave for abortion policy. Are you getting worried now? We're at the point of, I believe, 250 uh, of these nominations are being held up by a single senator. Is, is that the right thing to do? Well, I can't speak to him, except, but of course he would point out, and I'm just channeling Tommy Tuberville, yeah. if the um, Pentagon thinks it's a big issue, they should come to him and find a compromise. But if the Pentagon doesn't come to him, then maybe they don't think it's a big issue. And so I'm just channeling Tommy Tuberville there, but I think that's how he, how he would reply. I have only a minute left. Are you concerned about the cuts that are being proposed by some Republican House members? We keep hearing they don't have a chance of passing the Senate, that we could be in the, the, the headed for a government shutdown. Uh, I'm not even familiar with that issue. You know, the debt ceiling issue sets our kind of top-line numbers. Uh, it had right. uh, pretty broad uh, bipartisan support in the House. So I'm assuming some may be proposing, but the top-line numbers have now been agreed to. So those top-line numbers you support staying right where they are Well, I from, don't that, from the deal? Low. I want them to be higher. I think the world's more dangerous, and they just cut the fence. Uh, but that said, um, you know, to go even further below, uh, yeah. it's clearly not going to pass. It's politically not palatable. Great conversation, Senator. Don't be a stranger. We always appreciate your insights. The Republican from the great state of Louisiana, Bill Cassidy. With us here on Bloomberg Sound On, the fastest show in politics. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. We assemble the panel next. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... 
It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Another day of economic data showing a resilient consumer retail sales up unexpectedly as I read on the terminal. Purchases up three-tenths, beating all but one estimate on Wall Street. Markets looking at new highs today. Yet President Biden, not today, but recently carving out new lows on his approval ratings. There's so many cross-currents here. None of it makes sense, even as Jay Powell sends the message that he's not done hiking with new highs here. As we assemble the panel as... We remember our conversation earlier this hour with Senator Bill Cassidy weighing in on where we are here. He's concerned. He used the word depression, by the way, that was looming. And Jeannie Shanzano is with us, Bloomberg Politics contributor, Democratic analyst, joined today by Lester Munson, principal at government affairs firm BGR Group. It's great to have both of you with us here. Jeannie, we've talked about this before and and, and from a lot of different perspectives since Joe Biden took the White House. But the polling uh, figures that he's looking at here, the data going into this re-election cycle, uh, are poor. I think we can agree. Upper 30s, low 40s, depending on the day. When you've got arguably an economy that's so strong that Jay Powell can't break it. How do these two come together here when we see consumers continuing to confound economists with their spending habits? Yeah, that's right. I mean, he's had a little good news in the last week or so. It's not much, so I know mm-hmm. I'm stretching a bit, but he's up around the lower 40s, you know, in yeah, Quinnipiac and right. gov on approval for the economy. But before that, as you look back through like mid-May, he is in the mid-30s. And, it, you know, obviously always underwater with approvals, disapprovals rather, really, really strong on his, his handling of the economy. And the stunning part of that is the economy has proved to be, as you just talked about, very resilient. And so, you know, one thing that he has tried to do is let the Fed handle it and and not get involved um, as much as possible. But I think the fact is it's going to be something that he's going to have to address on the campaign trail or just at the very least try to avoid because these numbers have been stubborn on his approval rating for the economy. They have not moved despite by saying they've moved a little. That's about three points. They haven't moved that much in two plus years. As stubborn as the numbers on inflation, uh, you could say, and maybe that's the real connection here. That's what Senator Cassidy was reaching to. Uh, But Lester, if if Donald Trump were in office today, he'd be tweeting about new highs for the S&P 500. Uh, Microsoft seeing new highs today. These aren't just institutional buyers. We've got the whole FOMO in effect right now on Wall Street with with, retail investors piling money into the market because they obviously think calls 
of a recession are not ringing true. We're, we're ringing the register, according to retail sales data today. The job market, as we recently learned, is hanging strong, and uh, and that's despite the impact of inflation. So, Lester, isn't that a good story to tell for a, a Democratic president? It is a good story, and I think the White House is trying to tell that story and claiming credit for the for the good parts of this economy, but it's just... It's not breaking through in the way this kind of thing used to. And I I wouldn't discount the possibility, Joe, that, you know, we're just in a different era where a presidential approval rating in the low 40s is not that bad. Um, I, I do think Joe Biden's got kind of some structural issues, mostly related to his age. And if there's a downturn in the economy in the near future, yeah. particularly early next year, that's very bad for him. But, you know, it's possible that this is this is actually a decent position to be in given our politics right now that's so is that the new normal genie yeah he's gonna hope so lester you must go and and you know spread that news that good news to the white house they'd be (laughs) very happy to hear that um and and you know it may be the case that this is where we are in in modern america as people are so polarized i think the problem for joe biden is that this is not just amongst republicans i think it's also amongst democrats as well he simply doesn't get the respect the numbers in the economy suggest he should for very low unemployment and the rest of the good news part of that may be because they did flub it when it came to inflation. They kept saying it was transitory when it clearly wasn't. So they did make some mistakes there, but they've tried hard to clean those up. They'll still try to do that. And he'll continue to try to trumpet the good news as it comes out if it does. But the reality is, is he did flub it early on with inflation and they've had a hard time recovering from that. We're still hearing about transitory on a daily basis here. I'm sure Jay Powell has nightmares about it. Uh, at night, Lester, that that was sort of the original sin here. Everything we talk about involving the economy, including the bank failures, are traced back to that word. Is that partly why they don't believe the markets, that is, never mind uh, politicians here in Washington like Bill Cassidy, they don't believe what Jay Powell is telling them about the future trajectory for inflation? Well, I, I think my, my I'm no economist. I, I, I look at the market uh, for my own interests. Uh, it does. There does seem to be this view that you know we're actually on a pretty good path, mm-hmm. and the and the U.S. Uh, you know private sector is a good investment in the long term. You know, thank goodness, uh, I see the inflation numbers coming down. It's it's slow, but they are coming down. Uh, I, if I were if I were Biden and the White House, I'd be worried about this this. You know, everyone's been talking about the recession that's imminent for a year and a half. If it happens next year, that's a real problem for the White House because yeah. the people are going to be making up their minds about this race for real next summer and early next fall. And so, if in a way, they should be they they should hope for pain now so you don't have pain next year. Well, that'll certainly. Uh... Boy, that'll be something to talk about. We yesterday spoke with the chief economist, the Bank of America, on balance of power, and they have moved their forecast for a recession from the second half of this year to the first half of next year. And just think how that would color the conversation and change the whole debate on the campaign trail based on uh, what we're talking about now. I have to ask you both about uh, this plan on student debt relief. We discussed it with Senator Bill Cassidy. It's actually a package of several bills, the Lowering Education Costs and Debt Act, uh, including something called the College Transparency Act. And I think they're assuming, Jeannie, that the the Supreme Court is not going to allow Joe Biden to follow through with student debt forgiveness the way he wanted to. Is this the next best thing from your viewers? 
it even better. I think it's an important step, and and I do applaud, you know, Senator Cassidy, Senator Warren, and the others who are making the case that has to be made, which is that we need to deal with the underlying problem here, the roots of the problem of the costs, not just try to massage around the top, and that's what many people uh, feel that the Biden administration did with their forgiveness, and we will get a decision out of the Supreme Court on that very soon, and, you know, the reality is, though, students, and I see them every day, $1.75 trillion in debt, $5 billion in interest before the COVID-19 pandemic each month is being paid. I mean, this is a daunting, daunting, these are daunting numbers. And the problem is, of course, they don't vote in numbers like people of my age range and older for whom some of that would never be accepted. And so that's been the problem. And it's good to see Congress addressing it. I think this is a good first step, but there's so much more that needs to be done in Congress on this. What's your sense here, Lester? We're talking about 45 million Americans holding federal student debt. The Supreme Court soon going to uh, tell us what's going on here. I don't know if you have an expectation on how that pans out, but if if the president's plan is struck down, uh, is Congress capable of passing something as an alternative? Well, I don't. What I don't like about the Biden proposal is that it was it's without Congress. This was the president trying, by the stroke of a pen, yes, to assume he had the power to to forgive all of these loans. I think that's what bothered a lot of people. Not that we're trying to help some students who, who may have gotten themselves into a corner financially, but that this was this was being done outside the normal process. And maybe this is because I'm such a hill rat from before from my earlier part of my career, but much better idea to go through Congress where both parties get a say, where you have some natural compromise, where everyone's interests can kind of be on the table and you can and you can sort things out and get to a fair place. The the problem with the Biden administration proposal, and I think the reason it wasn't popular, seemed like it was just one a very one sided approach. This this what what Senator Cassidy and the other senators are doing, much better way to do it. Well, as the senator pointed out, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, if you follow their research here, uh, finds that even if the president's loan forgiveness plan is upheld by the Supreme Court, outstanding debt will return to its current levels in only five years. Jeannie, how depressing would that be for those students you look at every day? Oh, it's very depressing. And for their families as well. And for people who have younger children who are looking to send them to college in the near future or long term, mm-hmm. the number, the cost just keeps rising. And there are other ideas out there. You know, one of the ideas that is talked about is if Congress would act to limit the interest on education debt. So yeah. put it to 3% to be reduced to 1% when you complete your program. That would incentivize in the right direction. I I do agree with Lester. This is these things are best done via Congress and not the executive branch. But for that to happen, Congress needs to be acting. And so that's been a problem of late. And so that is where the rub is. And that is mm-hmm. in part why the Biden administration went forward. Smart talk with our panel, Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributor and Lester Munson, self-professed hill rat from BGR with us here on Bloomberg Sound On. We're going to hit the campaign trail next. You know, we've added another on the Republican side, and he's in really good shape. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. 
That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. If the object of a presidential campaign is differentiating yourself from the competition, if that is the goal, then the mayor of Miami may be onto something here. Mayor Francis Suarez filing his paperwork, as you may have heard on Bloomberg, and announcing his run for the Republican nomination with a shiny new ad showing off his physical prowess. I have always been a runner. It's the best place to charge my body and clear my mind. You've seen running all over Miami. Right here in T-shirt, shorts. This is where my parents began their American dream. He's got a good sweat going, six-pack abs. A lot different than the two front runners on both sides of the aisle, on each side, of course, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, where age uh, is one of the primary factors for a lot of voters. And so we're compelled by this. I believe, by the way, if you're playing along in your home game, this brings the field to 13. Let's ask Mark Niquette. always love talking to Mark about the latest on the campaign trail as he covers it here, Bloomberg National Political Reporter. Is it 13 candidates for the nomination now, Mark? Depends how you count uh, as a major candidate. Uh, there's probably more <laughs> than 13 who have filed, but okay, 13 sure. is probably a good number of, of you know folks who would have 13 people to make we've heard of, for, right? Who would have a chance to make the debate stage in August, which is going to be sort of a test of you know who can raise money, who yep. can like register in the polls and be able to you know participate in that debate. Need enough cash? Need one percent? What's this campaign all about? Is a 45 year old mayor? Uh, with model good looks, running around the city of Miami looking like, you know, a Marvel superhero. Is he actually a competitor or setting himself up for four years from now? I think at a minimum, he's probably doing the latter. Um, you know, there's a there's a governor's race coming up in Florida in, in 24, potentially. Uh, he might be a candidate for that. Um, this could help, you know, expose him to the country and, and maybe set himself up for a run in, in 2028. Uh, but the mayor is is clearly trying to position himself as you know, a, a Republican who can appeal to, to young voters, uh, urban voters and Hispanic voters, uh, which, you know, he would argue is a, is a growing demographic for Republicans. Can you get on a debate stage before the contest is over? I think it's going to be hard. I mean, we're, we're getting close to the end of the period where, you know, you can realistically get in the race if you're not a, yeah. a, a, a known quantity. Uh, and, and he certainly is not. Um, get in the race and, and still raise the, the amount of money. You need 40,000 uh, unique donors from 20 states, uh, and you have to register at least 1% of national polls to get on the debate stage. And it's going to be pretty hard if you're coming from a spot where you're not well-known outside your home state. You're going to be in Milwaukee in August, right? I'm sure you are. Yeah, we hope to be there covering the, the debate. It's going to be 
sort of the first big moment for the um, Republican presidential race. Hope we'll see you there, too. Mark Niquette, great uh, conversation, Mark. Bloomberg National political reporter as we reassemble the panel for their take here on this ever-expanding field. Jeannie Shanzano, Democratic analyst and Bloomberg politics contributor, joined today by Lester Munson, Republican strategist, principal at BGR Group. What do you think, Lester? Is there room for another? Uh, maybe not. I think you can only have like 10 um, uh, candidates on the stage. Didn't so they're going to have to do the kids table up? again. Yeah, that, yeah this, this was you, tough last time. Yeah, maybe he'll make it to the kids table. Uh, I, I don't know a lot <laughs> about the mayor. I did not see his video. I do know he voted for Democrats as recently as 2018. Huh. I'm not sure that's the best path to getting to be the Republican nominee for president. But who knows? Did I make too much about the abs, Jeannie? He just seems like he's in really good shape. He, boy, he has a very literal interpretation of running. It sounds yes. like, and it looks like a, like a Nike commercial. I, it I, does. I, I, I am going to go out and run right after this because I'm feeling yeah. very lazy. It's, I started doing sit-ups after <laughs> I watched it. That's right. And, you know, it, it is fascinating because, as we know, he is a mayor really in name only. He has very little executive power there. The real power there is the mayor of Miami-Dade. But he has made quite a name for himself. He's a year, um, he's just 45 years old, as you mentioned. His father was mayor. And he is, as he keeps saying, the only Hispanic, uh, the only Latino in the race. So he is, um, you know, out there. But I think, you know, to your point, and when you were talking to Mark, it's striking. Is any of this really about 24 or are we all really know. just talking about vp cabinet for 24 right. and the 28 race because of course you know nobody is taking on donald trump directly and he is 30 points ahead raised seven million dollars since he was federally indicted and i just give a shout out to mike pence for his radio interview hmm. I, I seldom do this he's not my favorite but hmm. i thought his response to travis and sexton was very good on uh trump we need to hear more of that and not just from chris christie so, yeah, 6.6 6 million. Is that the number, uh, Jeannie? He, Donald Trump raised since the indictment. Uh, the arraignment has made him richer, Lester. Has it made him stronger? It may be temporarily. I do think in the long run, the 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 these legal troubles for the former president hurt him uh, once it comes for time for folks to actually vote. Uh, they're not going to do that for seven months He's uh, he's going to be carrying around a lot of criminal charges, maybe over 100 at that point by January of next year. Uh, it's and the, there's a big chunk of Republican voters who have not made up their mind yet. I don't think this kind of stuff helps with them at all. Yeah, boy. Uh, Joe Biden, meanwhile, is staying pretty quiet here as we go into the summer. Jeannie, what's the play for the Biden campaign? I mean, is there one? Is he going to be doing town halls and rallies or just let Republicans beat each other up until it gets cooler outside. He is going to keep doing his job. He is going to keep his head down as far as possible. He is going to let them beat each other up. He's going to hope more people enter this race um, because the more the merrier. And, and to Lester's point, they really still do believe that if Trump can capture this thing um, and it's easier if there's more people in the race room to capture it, that that's better off for Joe Biden. Could we also just add that Suarez takes, we understand, takes his pay in Bitcoin? Yes, so, that's yeah, right. He was going to make Miami the crypto capital he's the reason right. why ftx uh got got on the miami <laughs> heats uh, uh stadium with the naming rights there i mean actually that would be some pretty decent oppo against him wouldn't it 
it, it is really, really fascinating. And we also have to say on the downside, he is being investigated by the SEC and by the FBI, the Miami Herald uh. report. So there's some ugliness, but hey, who is not that's in this GOP race at this point? Well, fair enough. Well, now, now, now. I'm sorry, Lester doesn't Joe. have time sorry, to Lester. weigh in on that. Uh, Jeannie Shanzano and Lester Munson will be back with some final thoughts and to see if we can spell potato. It was on this date. Dan Quayle will do that next on Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. To think it was more than 30 years ago. I was, I just, I, I had to, I figured it was a typo. 31 years ago. The nation got another lesson, as if they needed another, in spelling the word potato. And there's a lesson that comes from the incident, of course, that Dan Quayle could never possibly live down from this day in 1992. He's there in a classroom, the vice president, doing a little uh, spelling bee, if you will, with the students. And he says, potato, that's the word. The student comes up to the chalkboard to get the crayon and write it there. The chalk, I should say. You gotta wait for the vice president. You gotta let him see it. He says, wait for the vice president. Try one more time. Maybe I wanna do that one more time. Spell that again. Something at the end there. He spelled it perfectly, of course. Potato. How's it? You're right phonetically, but what else? There you go. Yeah. He put an E on it, which, of course, was something that made Dan Quayle the point of ridicule for many, many years. That was in 1992 on the 15th of June. And of course, there is a lesson learned beyond the spelling of potato with final thoughts from our panel here. Uh, Lester Munson, you know, he was reading off a cue card that had it spelled wrong. What's the lesson for all these folks on the campaign trail to avoid a scenario like that one? Uh, Well, First of all, what a wonderful tradition that we have of making fun of our vice presidents and kind of laughing at them. Uh, this is arguably the second most important job in the government. Uh, right. and, and we can't help but laugh at them. You know, even even today, you know, people are, are taking shots at the vice president. I don't think it's it's very fair, but it's it seems to come with the job. Um, I would say make sure you hire good staff. 
you know, gosh. Good staff is part of this staff work here, Jeannie. But isn't it funny? We only have, well, we've got less than a minute left. That that was the biggest controversy of the time as we look back on this week that a president was indicted with federal charges. That's right. What a quaint time. Potato, potato. It wouldn't even make headlines today. And it was the elementary school that spelled it wrong on the cue card, by the way. Yes, Not even right. anybody else. Yeah. That you're, you're right. And boy, did he regret that moment. He must have been waking up in the middle of the night with panic attacks, reliving the whole thing. Jeannie Shanzano, Lester Munson, we thank you as ever. Our great panel here, Hour 2 of Sound On, starts right now. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. And welcome to Hour 2 of Bloomberg Sound On. Live from Washington, I'm Joe Matthew, joined now by Kaylee Lines, who, of course, joins us every day at this time. And Kaylee, we've got an eye on Ukraine today. With a lot of conflicting headlines about what's going on uh, in this counteroffensive that we waited months to see actually happen. And we're hearing from the top brass at the Pentagon today mm-hmm. that says, don't believe everything you read. Yes. Well, we're also hearing from the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin that this is going to be a marathon, mm-hmm. not a sprint, which just kind of speaks to underscore already what has been the length of this conflict and how much further it realistically could go. They got together in Brussels this morning, meeting with other defense ministers, if uh, we can use the term. Here's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley. They're in the early stages, and it's far too early to make any definitive assessments. But I can tell you that each day, the Ukrainians demonstrate the courage and tenacity needed to methodically regain their territory. So you see this headline on the terminal. Uh, Kiev cites severe fighting as forces advance. Ukrainian forces reporting partial success in a counteroffensive, backed by a fresh infusion of arms a day after Vladimir Putin acknowledged that Russian troops lack sufficient advanced weapons. Then you turn to The Guardian, uh, Ukraine taking significant casualties, making Mm -hmm. slow progress towards Russian defense, according to Western officials. Lloyd Austin was asked about these reports that, for instance, they're losing a lot of tanks, uh, that they're having trouble uh, making any movement here, that it's quickly turning into a war of attrition. Here's Secretary Lloyd Austin. There will continue to be battle damage. I think the Russians have shown us uh, that same five vehicles uh, about a thousand times from ten different angles. Uh, but quite frankly, uh, the Ukrainians have still have a lot of combat capability, combat power. And of course, we can send more. There was another drawdown announced today as well in Brussels. More mm-hmm. uh, weapons heading over, Kaylee. But they don't believe a lot of what they're hearing, as he just figured or just said. They figured that Russia is reusing the same photographs of blown up tanks over and over. Right. It's so hard to know whether or not the information you're receiving is actually accurate or is mis or disinformation, right? Mm-hmm. Because we know the propaganda-esque aspect uh, that we have to consider with this as well. But even as you know, there is a lack of clarity as to what exactly is going on on the ground. That doesn't mean that the support call from uh, the U.S. and allies is waning. Austin also was saying today that you need to dig deep, mm-hmm. encouraging allies to continue this support in both the short term and the long term. Well, we get to talk about it with Dr. Kelly Grieco. I'm glad to say she's back with us. Last time we spoke was when uh, we were kind of on the precipice of the F-16s, and now we've yep. made our way through that. They're actually training pilots. And, and by the way, uh, Lloyd Austin did talk about that earlier today. Dr. Grieco, senior fellow at the Stimson Center. And I wonder your thoughts on, on what we're hearing here, doctor, and what you believe is actually happening on the ground. Is, is Ukraine 
moving forward with this offensive or is it on its heels? Uh, well, first, thank you for having me. Uh, to be honest, I would say this is going probably exactly how I would expect. Uh, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind exactly what Ukraine's trying to do here, and that is attacking against a defender that is well entrenched, has laid out minefields and obstacles to make it very difficult for Ukraine's offensive to progress. And despite that, Ukraine has managed to liberate nine villages, towns um, in the border area um, of the front lines. And so this is, you know, I didn't, I think I would not have expected this to go very quickly. This is, you know, the word that um, I think it was Millie in your tape used was methodical. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what we're seeing is a slow, methodical rolling back. Well, if it's slow and methodical, that would indicate that this is still something that's going to drag on for quite some time. Is there any technology that the U.S. or other allies could give Ukraine at this point to accelerate things? Yes, I think this is going to take quite a bit of time. Um, you know, I think in the in the West, we like technology and we like to find technological solutions to these kinds of problems. But there really isn't any kind of technological silver bullet or wonder weapon that would actually help, frankly, with this problem. This is about combining different kinds of arms and systems together to generate an effect because in ground warfare in particular, defense is very, very strong. Um, you know, up until now, largely Ukraine's been on the defensive and taken advantage of that. And the Russians have had months to prepare for what they know is a coming attack from the Ukrainians and have learned from the Ukrainians about the strength of defense and how to prepare that. And so this is really about executing more in some respects about skill and having sufficient quantity of weapons. But unfortunately, there's not a wonder weapon. Well, they thought the F-16 might be a bit of a wonder weapon, at least with what we were hearing. We spoke with uh, Yuri Sok, uh, the spokesperson for uh, the defense minister in Ukraine. This is, you know, this was the golden ticket. And now that this is starting to actually progress, they don't they're not flying F-16s at the moment. We are training uh, their pilots to prepare for this moment. Lloyd Austin was asked about it today in Brussels. Here's what he said. We were briefed today on on uh, kind of the outline of the plan and the steps for, you know, for the way ahead. Uh, and I have to tell you that uh, they, in the 30 days that we've been after this, uh, they have leaned into this in a major way. Um, as you know, the United States uh, will have to provide uh, uh, approval for the training and also uh, some other aspects of this. Interesting little disclaimer at the end there. Uh, uh, doctor, you didn't think that the F-16s were necessarily the best idea. Do you see the U.S. approving a go forward here to actually oper operationalize them? And do you think at this point it'll make a difference? No, I mean, I still maintain that I don't think the, the F-16 will prove as decisive in changing the tide of combat as many people expect. Um, Russia has really dense and sophisticated air defense systems, and the F-16 is not a stealth aircraft. So it would be very vulnerable against those kinds of air defenses. And it's going to be complicated to operate the system inside the country um, in terms of maintenance and things like that. It'll just take time put that in place. And the Ukrainians have shown themselves capable of learning how to do these kinds of things. But it does take time. And I would just go back to once again, that this is fundamentally a ground war. Uh, and it's a it's an artillery game. And we see that right now in the offensive. This is all about artillery. Well, 
So when we talk about that, what the F-16s and also what certain tanks have in common is that it took the U.S. a long time to come around to the idea that, okay, yes, we actually are going to give in uh, and give Ukraine these things. Has the administration wasted too much time on the debate about whether or not to provide a weapon before ultimately doing so? And has that set Ukraine back in this fight? Well, I think that's an interesting question because they've tried to sort of thread this policy needle of supporting Ukraine and and trying to meet its needs on the battlefield, but also avoiding escalation dangers with Russia. And one of the things that I will say that I think many people have missed is that the approach that the administration's taken of this sort of incremental ramping up of aid, I think has actually been the way they've very effectively managed the escalation risk. So what they've essentially done to Putin is to say to him every time, you know, okay, we're going to now send HIMARS. Or then we say we're going to send patriots. Is he really going to escalate to, say, a tactical nuclear use over any individual weapon system? Probably not. But if we had announced all of these things at the same time, his decision calculus might have been different. So, yes, it has slowed down the process of getting these systems to Ukraine, but it's done it in a way that has also served U.S. interests of supporting Ukraine without getting us directly involved in a conflict with Russia. Some pretty compelling uh, remarks, only because they are rare, uh, from Vladimir Putin acknowledging uh, some actual negative news on their side here. He says Russia has lost 54 tanks uh, since Ukraine's drive began last week. That's the first time the Kremlin has admitted to losses on such a scale here, and that may not acknowledge all of them. Doctor, do you have a sense of, of the health right now of the Russian military that's that's engaged in Ukraine? Yeah, I feel like this is the the really big question. Uh, you know, I wonder a lot about Russian morale, for example, and I'm sure the Ukrainians are wondering about it too. It's going to be awful. Because if, yeah, I mean, we're you would think, you know, if, if we're going to see some kind of real breakthrough, uh, you know, that the Ukrainians make in this counteroffensive, my guess is it'll be because of poor Russian morale and that and that it collapses. And so I think that is the real question. And we know that they basically have just been feeding troops in to the battlefield with very little training and undertaking, you know, really dangerous and intense combat. And so, uh, you know, I think those comments by Putin are very interesting because it's acknowledging a loss and you have to think he's preparing some ground for his public huh. um, to perhaps expect future losses. Well, as we talk about the Russian military in particular, there's also the question of the Wagner Group and what seems to be, you know, escalating tension between Vladimir Putin and Prigozhin. How much does that matter in Russia's fight here? Yeah, I mean, this is a fascinating side story, right? Um, you know, how, um, you know, the Wagner head has not gone out a, a window in Russia, I don't know. But uh, what's interesting about it is that this is probably one of the best things that Ukraine could have happen in the sense that they're very involved in their own internal political struggle between this Wagner um, head of mercenary group and the Russian regular military and, and defense ministry. And the more they're fighting with each other, the more they're distracted from what should be their enemy, which is the Ukrainian military. I think it's also interesting that Putin himself has sort of tolerated to a large degree this infighting going on. And I think it's because right now, anyway, the Wagner head is useful to him and laying blame on the Russian military because it's setting up a set of fall guys. Um, mm. You know, the uh, Grasimov and um, and the head of the, the defense force there. So uh, how long that goes on, we'll see. But right now, anyway, I think Putin sees it as providing some cover for him. Spending some time with Dr. Kelly Grieco of the Stimson Center with an eye on some apparent progress 
uh, with the counteroffensive in Ukraine. There was a question today about timeline uh, in the news conference with uh, General Mark Milley, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was there with the Defense Secretary once again. Doctor, I don't know if it's a good thing when the chairman of the Joint Chiefs starts quoting Napoleon, uh, but that did happen. Listen. Uh, There are several hundred thousand Russian troops dug in and prepared positions uh, all along the front line. Uh, And uh, Ukraine has... uh, uh, begun their attack, and they are making uh, steady progress. This is a very difficult fight. Uh, It is a very violent fight, uh, and it will likely take a considerable amount of time and at high cost. But at the end of the day, as Napoleon once said, the moral is to the physical as three is to one. The moral is the physical as three is to one. What do you think of that? Yes. uh, It's kind of what you were saying, isn't it? It is. It's exactly right. He's, you know, it's the morale issue. And one thing that we see is the Ukrainians are very determined and they've prepared their population for this fight. They've released some, you know, propaganda videos that, you know, we're getting ready to fight. And at the end of the day, they're liberating what they see fundamentally as their own territory and their own people. And and they're counting on that to provide and to be an enabler of their operations compared to the Russians um, that are, you know, more disillusioned, not as well trained and not as well treated by their own superior officers. Finally here, we only have about a minute or so left, Doctor, but when we think about the end game, ultimately is this about just reclaiming as much territory as possible, ending in kind of a stalemate? Is outright victory even possible for either side at this stage in the war? If by outright victory you mean uh, liberating all the territory, including Crimea, I think that's a really hard ask on the part of the Ukrainians. But what I think they can do is make significant gains, perhaps, on the battlefield. They'll be costly, but make enough gains that put them in a better position to negotiate with the Russians some type of compromise end to the war uh, that will you know, leave them both not entirely satisfied, but will allow Ukraine a country we expected maybe to fall in four days to actually reclaim quite a bit of territory. Amazing stuff. Doctor, thanks for the time. It's great to talk to you again. Kelly Grieco, senior fellow uh, with the Reimagining U.S. Grand Strategy Program. Isn't that great? At uh, the Stimson Center. Great title. Quoting Napoleon <laughs> in a news conference like that in Brussels. I was fascinated by it. I mean, it's actually, it's 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 just a great line. It is. In war, the moral is to the physical as three is to one. It's sort of written for Ukraine here. Uh, Of course, it's been a real challenge to get uh, military nominations through the House at this time of supporting Ukraine. We're going to talk about that coming up. The Tuberville blockade. It's going around. It's not the only blockade on Capitol Hill. A lot of nominations are being blocked. Hundreds of them. We'll talk about it next. On Sound On, this is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. So we just spent the first almost half hour here of this hour. Maybe I should say the first half of this hour, Kaylee Lines, talking (laughs) about uh, the war in Ukraine here, the drawdown today, and the conversation we had in Brussels with the Secretary of Defense, the Chair of the Joint Chiefs. And it brings us to a matter here in Washington that uh, a lot of top brass not very happy about this 
uh, this block from Senator Tommy Tuberville using Senate rules. This is the mm-hmm. power of one in the Senate to delay promotions for what I believe is now counting to 250 Defense Department leaders uh, in protest of the Pentagon's announcement here that it's going to pay for service members to travel to obtain abortions. It's a sort of travel or paid leave. Mm-hmm. And so he's throwing up a blockade on a lot of folks who are needed at this time at the Pentagon. Karine Jean-Pierre, the press secretary at the White House, was asked about it just yesterday. First of all, it's shameful that he's doing this, right? I mean, he needs to be asked the question is, why is he uh, putting our national security at risk? That is something for a senator to be able to answer to. We're trying to do the right thing by moving forward and protecting our military readiness and protecting our military families. So we wanted to have a conversation about this to find out where we're going here, because I don't think we have any sign of this stopping anytime soon. No, I mean, one of our very own colleagues here at Bloomberg, Tyler Kendall, saw Senator Tuberville in the hallway in the Senate today and asked him specifically about that comment from the White House, what his response was to it being shameful. He essentially alluded to the fact that the press secretary doesn't know what she's talking about in regard to this bill and that he's going to keep at it. As a matter of fact, here he is. First of all, it's shameful that he's doing this. We'll get that for you in just a second, actually. If you guys could pull that for us, we want to hear directly from Tuberville talking today uh, with Bloomberg News. In the meantime here, we bring in Megan Scully, who is our team leader, our Congress team leader. We go to the top on this program, Kaylee. Speaking of which, Wendy Benjaminson, Bloomberg Deputy Managing Editor. Great to see both of you guys, and thank you for uh, coming in to join us. Megan, I'll start with you as uh, a a longtime uh, observer, we'll say, uh, of actions on Capitol Hill. Is, Is this a misuse of Senate rules, or is this sort of the whole point for how the the minority can actually have a say in what goes on in Washington. I think the answer to that depends on whether you agree with Senator Tuberville or not. Um, But it is, as you said, the power of one. Usually nominations like this are particularly for the for the mid-level officers and and the the low-level generals um, within the military are just passed by unanimous consent, um, you know, right before the Senate leaves for a recess. Uh, What is happening now is that the Senate's unable to go forward with them unless they embark on this very time-consuming procedure Mm -hmm. um, that they would have to do for each one of those, more than 200, as you said. We're now kind of getting into a bit of a crisis mode, though, because there are several members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, including the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who have to, by statute, retire in the coming Mm -hmm. months. Mm -hmm. So this is going to come to a head, potentially, Wendy, uh, over the ultimate, the highest of top brass uh, in the Pentagon. Uh, But it's also not the only blockade we're seeing like this. This has become a real tactic for Republicans in the Senate. Oh, Republicans and Democrats. It's like all the rage right now (laughs) because you have... um, Biden is getting it from two Democratic senators, one who's more toward the right wing of the Democratic Mm -hmm. Party and the other, Bernie Sanders, who's at the far left. Mm -hmm. They are holding up. Joe Manchin is holding up nominations for any EPA staff or appointees because he opposes Biden's energy policies. And Bernie Sanders is holding up any health-related appointees until he gets what he wants on pharmaceutical prices. And then you have Tuberville and you have... J.D. Um, Vance. J.D. Vance, thank you very much. A Republican. A Republican, but... yes, who is holding up uh, any all DOJ appointees just because he's mad that wow. Donald Trump was indicted. Well, it, it, it's a question of, like, is hostage-taking now just 
how the U.S. government works. That was surely the word that was thrown around with the debt ceiling. We won't raise the debt ceiling until you give us the budget we want. Uh, And now it's we're not going to confirm anyone until you do. So how do these... the cries of defunding the Justice Department over over the Trump indictment as well. You make a great point, though. It's bipartisan, Kaylee. So so as, as Joe Biden once said... Right. I guess at that point, it's a little different. A 50-50 Senate, everyone's right. president. Guess what? Everyone still is kind of in the Senate. Well, and it becomes a question, Megan, of how these standoffs end if people aren't just going to get what they want. Yeah. And, and you mentioned hostage taking, right? So what Chuck Schumer is debating right now is whether he wants to negotiate with yeah. with these hostage takers. Um, it's one of those things where if he if he gives Senator Tuberville what he wants, he's going to have to give Senator Sanders what he wants. Mm-hmm. And he's going to have to, and on and on and on. And this just becomes more of a routine in the Senate. That being said, the Senate does not like to shed itself of any of its traditions. You you see this with the, the filibuster rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, these time-honored um, rituals within what what is called the upper chamber. So I don't see it going anywhere, that particular rule. What we might see is um, them taking some time to do the procedures on these high-ranking nominees. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, I don't know what happens with the with the 200 and some odd right. generals that are, that are also awaiting. Let's hear from the senator again. He spoke with Bloomberg News today. Here's how it went. She needs to know something about the bill first. He's talking about Korea. What's going on. Uh, obviously, I saw the little clip yesterday. She probably never heard of it, and she probably had it in her book, and and uh, she didn't make any sense of what she was talking about. But we're sticking with what we believe in. It's an illegal bill, and they're trying to make an end run in the NDAA and all that. It's not going to work. Uh, they got to change the policy back, illegal policy, get a standalone bill on the floor, and let's vote on it. That's how we're going to end this thing. Joe, it strikes me that he says we're sticking with what we believe in. And I want to know who the we is, Wendy, that he's referring to when he has Republican colleagues in the Senate who are now pushing back against his tactics here. I mean, is he talking about the people of Alabama? <laughs> who knows what he's talking movement, about? I guess. He could be talking right. about the anti-abortion movement. He could be talking about, you know, um, we read that John, John Cornyn and Joni Ernst, who are both, I believe, anti-abortion rights uh, senators are trying to get him to drop this just so in the interest of, frankly, national security, uh, to getting these generals and, and uh, high officers in place. But also Joni Ernst has a bill that would um, prohibit the Pentagon from allowing service personnel to yeah. go and get abortions um, in other states if they need to. And she's said, look, let's just get a bill in the House, a vote in the House Armed Services Committee since we know in a Democratic Senate this isn't actually going to become law, and he's refused. So he's refusing another conservative anti-abortion Republican um, who is trying to get him to drop the hold. Yes, right. So does this end up in, I mean, it's an opportunity, I suppose, for the leader. Let's make a deal, everybody. I mean, we got to get the, the wheels turning somehow. So what could he get uh, out of these guys that, that, that might make sense? And when I say guys, I mean... To your point, senators on both sides of the aisle, how do we unlock some of these nominations? Well, I mean, Megan uh, Megan brought up an excellent point, which was at what point does it end? Once you mm-hmm. start negotiating with hostage takers, if right. we're going to use their own analogy, mm-hmm. then then where exactly does it does it end? This also costs Biden a politically significant moment because 
uh, General C.Q. Brown, yes, the I'm nominee, glad you're this up. <laughs> the nominee to be the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, is a historic nomination in that with him and Lloyd Austin as the top two Pentagon officials in the country, mm-hmm. um, you would have two African Americans at the top of the U.S. military Running for the, the first Pentagon. time. Absolutely, that may not be realized for a long that time. That may not continues. be realized if this continues. Right, and then what do you do? I mean, they're all Republicans love to talk about national security and the threat mm-hmm. of China and the threat of Iran and other and the Russia-Ukraine uh, war. And, you know, if the Pentagon is hamstrung by not having its generals in place, that doesn't bode well. Yeah, I think it raises a really interesting question as we had so much Republican pushback during the debt ceiling negotiations about the idea of disp- defense spending and a 3% rise in that spending being um, too small, frankly. Yeah. And yet it, it's almost like the concept of defense being treated differently in different political contexts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it is treated differently in different political contexts. They want, um, remember, the federal government has regulated abortion outside of Supreme Court rulings before. There was the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits federal funding. Mm-hmm. For abortion rights. And that's been the law of the land as long as Roe v. Wade was the law of the land. And so this really isn't, it's the flip side of that. Mm -hmm. But this time, Republicans don't like it. I always love spending time with Wendy Benjaminson. Many thanks for the the analysis. That's great. And Megan Scully, great to have you with us as well here as part of our conversation today on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Joe Matthew alongside Kaylee Lines. We need to get some news, and we're going to turn next to crypto. They did a survey. Did you see this mm-hmm. of terminal users, Kaylee? Oh, I did. On how things are going here in the U.S. <laughs> we're laughing for a reason. A little uh, teaser. I bet Not you great. can figure out how that, that went. Nathan Dean's going to join us from Bloomberg Intelligence. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. So, Kaylee, here's a question. Is the United States a hospitable place for cryptocurrencies? Mm. This is not a trick question, and no, it's not a joke. It's actually the very question that Bloomberg Intelligence has been asking terminal users in the first of three days here. We love the surveys at BI, and it really lands right in the middle of what you specialize in, of course, among other things that would be crypto in a city that can't figure out what to do with it. Yes, this is very true on the regulatory side, on the congressional side. When I talk to people on the industry side, they will tell you, no, the U.S. is not a friendly place for <laughs> right. us to be. I mean, almost without fail, that is their answer, which is why you're seeing a shift toward other jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. There's still just a lack of, of clarity. It's proven really, really difficult for everyone to get their heads around uh, who should have the regulatory authority, what Congress uh, ultimately thinks definition-wise about what's a security and what's a commodity. Right. And we're all still just in waiting mode while Gary Gensler continues to slap enforcement actions on Yeah, but a the lot chairman of says just come in. And register. Yeah. He talked to David Weston about this just last week. I think the crypto industry more broadly, if it's going to have any success going forward, has to come into compliance with basic public policy about disclosure, about avoiding conflicts, about segregating, properly segregating customer funds and guarding against fraud manipulation. Of course, the groan was heard across the crypto sphere. (laughs) I'm not sure Nathan Dean was groaning, but uh, he was hearing from a lot of folks this week. Nathan, it's great to see you. 
Uh, welcome back, of course, here on Bloomberg Radio. We love to compare notes with Nathan Dean and his colleagues at Bloomberg Intelligence. So this, I believe you uh, likened that question, is the U.S. a hospitable place for cryptocurrencies to is water wet? Yeah, you know, I had a lovely gentleman from Wall Street uh, when we sent the survey out respond that way and say uh, – <laughs> You know, why are you even asking this? But, you know, it's important to note that, uh, you know, crypto firms are in this spot at the moment where do they want to be in the United States or anecdotally, do they want to pick up their toys and go somewhere else? And that's what we were trying to figure out here is, is that, you know, do you think the U.S. is a place for crypto platforms to thrive? And if not, where do you want to go? And, you know, just some of the high level you know, views that we got from the survey, you know, nearly everybody feels that the U.S. is not a hospitable place. Okay. The top two roadblocks were lack of uh, regulatory clarity. And then secondly, it was an aggressive uh, enforcement uh, apparatus, which are sort mm-hmm. of tied together. So uh, it's really interesting that, you know, at least now we know that, you know, this idea of come in and register is just it's not. Re- uh, resonating with the crypto industry. And I, I I promised, I vowed I would never use a Star Wars joke on radio again, but it's like Admiral Ackbar in Return of the Jedi when he screams out, it's a trap. Yeah. <laughs> going to talk to the SEC chairman is a trap. You're either going to spend millions and millions of dollars and get nowhere, or they may say, thank you very much, here's an enforcement action. Right. Well, just to put some of the firm numbers around this, when we say it was an overwhelming majority, 91% of respondents said the U.S. fails to provide a home for firms and platforms to thrive. 96% of respondents thought there was a lack of regulatory clarity. And then in a question on enforcement risk, 100% believed crypto firms in the U.S. should be either very concerned or somewhat concerned. I mean, it's hard to find consensus like that anywhere else. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have Coinbase, you have Grayscale, you have Gemini, you have Ripple. I mean, not. it's pretty much if you're operating in crypto in the moment uh, in the United States, the SEC may come after you because, you know, the SEC takes the approach that this, you know, that 99% of the tokens out there, not Bitcoin, and uh, but pretty much all the others, that they are securities, and then you have to follow 1930s-era securities law. The mm-hmm. cryptocurrency industry disagrees with that. Mm-hmm. So uh, until you get Congress or the courts to come in and actually say this is what the clarity is, you know, this is, you're, you're going to have to be afraid that the SEC is going to come knock on your door at some set. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Congress, because that's really what this comes down to, right? It is up to the lawmakers over there on Capitol Hill to mm-hmm. delineate what authority the SEC has and what authority the CFTC has. And we've seen an attempt, Dusty Johnson, French Hill, Patrick McHenry, you know, the House Ag and Financial Services Committee authored a joint bill to try and, you know, lay out what market structure should look like. Is there a sense that that's really going to go anywhere? So our survey, 75 percent of the respondents said that they didn't think Congress was going to pass a comprehensive framework between the 2024 or before the 2024 elections. Should be said, though, that the McHenry Thompson bill came out Mm -hmm. during the survey period. In my own opinion, that is a very comprehensive and complex bill that I don't think will pass as is, but certainly needs to serve as a debate of what the future of crypto look, because they spent a lot of time on that. And, you know, it delineates what is the SEC versus what is the CFTC authority. You know, what is a security? What is a commodity? It allows you to register as what is known as an alternative trading system or uh, di- digital commodity exchange. There's a lot of definitions in there. It could, it's a good starting point. But if they don't ever, if the cryptocurrency industry doesn't ever get uh, Democratic skeptical Democrats to come on board and say, we think this is all just, you know, that this can fit within the CFTC and the SEC. It's just it's not going to go anywhere. And wow. this uncertainty is going to remain. Tell us how these uh, how you do the surveys here, because you're actually talking to terminal users 
uh, specifically, right? How do you reach them? Is there anyone else involved? Well, you know, we, we certainly advertise our surveys. You know, we have uh, abilities to reach out to terminal clients. And yeah. one of the things that the, the terminal clients love best about this is that it's, you know, you get a flavor of what uh, other terminal clients are thinking. Because, you know, if you're sitting in Manhattan, for example, you may not know what the folks who have terminals down in Miami are sitting. Or, you know, you may be a buy-side analyst. You don't know what the sell-side analyst is saying and so forth like that. So, uh, you know, we share these results with anybody who takes the surveys. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it's been pretty successful in trying to get a good flavor of what people are thinking. And I would note you do get kind of granular when it comes to specific uh, litigation regarding the SEC. We all know Binance, Coinbase has been slapped with it. There's ongoing lawsuit when it comes to Ripple and whether XRP uh, was an unregistered security. And the survey participants thought Coinbase was actually probably most likely to win. Yeah. And, that, and that's a consensus with what the BI view. I mean, the BI view is that Coinbase has a decent shot. Now, the, the caveat is that it may go all the way to the Supreme Court, and we may be doing this in 2026. <laughs> um, you know, the one surprising thing from that question is that 40% of respondents thought that Grayscale was going to have ability to huh. beat their suit. This right. uh, this actually differs from our view. Uh, the BI house view, which is my colleague Elliot Stein, is giving them a 70% chance of winning. Hmm. And so, you know, if there's some negativity out there in the market about grayscale, well, you know, maybe they can be a little bit more optimistic if they're going to follow the BI view. Fascinating, as always. Uh, how do folks find the survey here? So it's on the terminal. Uh, you know, just go to our dashboard, B-I-L-A-W-S, B-I Laws, right. or, and it's right there. And you've got two more days of this coming, right? Yep. So we're going to, we'll keep filling you in uh, on what we learned from the only member of the Bloomberg intelligence crew who shows up with a Star Wars reference on this program, <laughs> Kaylee, and we love him for it. It's a trap! Yes, that would be Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst Nathan D. Many thanks, Nathan, for being with us with Kaylee Lines in Washington. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.